Hello, Dan. Hello, Dan. Another day, another podcast, as we all say here in the podcasting business, which we are all part of. Just another Just another podcasting day. Um, what a nice beanie you're wearing, Dan. Well done. I just want to say, listeners can't see it, but Dan's wearing a great beanie. I'd just like to point that out. Um, I'm calling it right now. Spring's here. And if cold weather happens again, I'm going to kill myself. <laughs> <laughs> so let's hope no more cold weather otherwise i'll just be gone because i've set in my brain i've set in my brain dan there's sun springs here no more I mean, winter this was the problem this time last year or all, all the way through the sort of like the spring lockdown last year every time there was nice weather it was like nice weather is here forever and yeah. every time it started raining again i was like it's just gonna rain forever and i'm never gonna get to leave my house <laughs> um, so it's, it's it's the inherent ambiguity of the season yeah. Unfortunately. And I have to remember and, here um, that like I mean it like it, it's it's highs and lows but like mm. I guess, I guess we're going to have to sustain ourselves on the highs <laughs> somehow and uh, somehow somehow hopefully survive the lows although like, <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, we'll see. You never know. Yeah. I also have to remember that here just like spring it also just means like rain out of the blue. Like it's fine <laughs> and then it just rains for like 6 inches and then it stops and it's sunny again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Winter's supposed to be relatively dry compared to Oh God! <laughs> but um, no, but I mean, it's all. I mean, it's all haywire, isn't it? Like, it's, it's all haywire. It's all it's true. It's all a mess. It is indeed a mess. I saw somebody on Twitter a while ago posted something like with all the ice storms that have been uh, afflicting the uh, the United States, specifically Texas. Um, they were like, "Wow, a once in a lifetime thing to see this kind of weather in Texas." And I was just like, "How many times am I going to have to hear this once in a lifetime crap?" <laughs> Like about like, in my lifetime, yeah. I'm gonna have to hear, hear about the weather in Texas, the fires in California, the economic collapses, <laughs> politics. Well, once the problem in a is like every time. It, I mean, everything's getting progressively worse, right? <laughs> yeah. So yeah. every instance of a thing is going to be the worst instantiation of that thing. That's true. Until next year, when it just gets worse. <laughs> oh, I guess they're just right then. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They are right in a sort of incredibly apocalyptic yeah. manner, in a morbid, morbid way. Yeah, we were recently discussing apocalypse and the uh, apocalypse. If we should be paying attention to um, apocalyptic signs, or how much we should be worrying about the apocalypse, or if an apocalypse might be on the horizon, or if we should just not worry about it at all. Yeah, um, how 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 pessimistic are you feeling today? Uh, as opposed to yesterday, maybe slightly less so. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's not saying much. Uh-huh. When I say pessimistic, uh-huh. uh. Whatever's going to happen is probably going to happen, uh-huh. honestly. I don't know if, if uh, this podcast is going to change that. Yeah. Unless Joe Biden, unless you are listening, in which case, you know, again, respond to my DMs, come on the damn show. Yes, whatever's going to happen is honestly going to happen. I hate to say it. We should uh-huh. all do our best to stop it, but eh, it's going <laughs> to happen. It's going to happen. It's like people are really scared of death. You know what I mean? It's like, I don't know. I get it, but it's like, I don't know. It's going to happen. You know what I mean? It's going to happen whenever. <laughs> it could happen soon if the sun goes away. <laughs> Sure, yeah, but it, it is possible to, like, live with certain knowledge without having that knowledge be, like, operative or influential sure. in your uh, sure in your conception of yourself. Mm. I'm mm-hmm. not sure I don't think I'm going to live forever. <laughs> you are, Dan. <laughs> you are. Oh, thank God for that. <laughs> um, it's interesting that we were doing this reading this week because halfway through it, um, I got a call, as I explained to you, that I'm getting a new job, which is very nice. I'm very excited. Right. Um, but it is 
it was it was very funny to be like I said doing this reading in the middle of that because it was like this reading is kind of all about like definitions between classes and like you know maybe like moving between classes and stuff mm -hmm. and I was just very much like wow moving out of a warehouse into like an office job. This is very surreal to be mm, reading this. Your class interest change. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> the political winds are shifting. <laughs> I I got very sad all of a sudden that Rush Limbaugh had died. That's all. I'm saying. <laughs> all of a sudden, um, no. I will carry on the uh, the commie fight. Um, but yeah, I just thought that was funny. It was very strange, mm -hmm. very surreal. Mm -hmm. um, well, different different classes and different class interests can all mm -hmm. be represented under the umbrella of um, I don't know progress. I don't know <laughs> something. <laughs> Uh, I yeah, a viable working class movement is going to be a, uh, either an alliance of classes or an alliance of members of the same class. You make a good point. You make a good point. You're just sort of like I'm making inroads at another. I'm making inroads. <laughs> yeah, I'm making inroads. Making movements. Making movements. Yeah, I'm making just movements. Moving. Moving. <laughs> um, what else has been going on? I, don't, I can't. I can't really think of anything. Mm. Um. Mm. Very morbid. Speaking of apocalypse, the United States just passed half a million people dead from COVID, which was pretty one of those numbers that like was like, whoa, wasn't it just last week? It was six figures for the first time. It's very surreal. Uh -huh. um, I didn't know. I mean, I knew that it was um, quite catastrophic there, but I didn't know quite. When you put not a great. On it, not great. Put a number on it. I was speaking with a friend um, recently, and this friend was saying that there's who was it? One of their family members. Um, was working as a social worker for like and kind of like an old folks home kind of thing mm -hmm. um, uh, in a big city. And uh, when COVID started, it got so bad that um, I believe 65% of the people who were living at this old folks home died, which is pretty fucking brutal. Mm -hmm. um, and it got to the point where uh, they don't think they had enough beds or places to put the people. So they're just kind of like there, just kind of like which is pretty brutal, just like dead. Very oh, gnarly. Okay. Very, very gnarly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I found out about that the other day, and I was just like, wow, we are still living through a pretty horrible thing. Yeah. Kind of forgot about it. Mm. Yeah, like, like, I mean, the American response seems to be a, just a fully embrace. <laughs> because of death. Like, hug it tight. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I, it seems like a lot of people's response is that. Well, for what I can kind of um, glean, mm, glean, it seems like... Sort of social position and advantage seems to have sure so much more bearing in the state. I mean, obviously, it has quite a lot of bearing on people's experience of mm. um, the ongoing COVID crisis here. But like mm. in America, like even access to what's 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 the process for accessing the vaccines in America? Like, is it purely if you can pay, you play? Yeah, I mean, it depends. I mean, you were able to get tests pretty early on if you just paid for it. Um, I know all I can really speak to is like my family's experience with it. And it's been impossible where they live to get uh, vaccines in the age bracket that they're in, unless you were willing to submit to like the test trial. Um, I see. Okay. So that's my route that a lot of people have taken. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, state to state, city to city, I'm sure. LA Times recently posted something that was like, interactive map see how many people have been vaccinated in your neighborhood and i think it was kind of supposed to be a bit of a shaming thing mm -hmm. but it was, I, I was like why would you post this it was like so clearly like every poor neighborhood was way less there's like malibu and rancho pv which are like the two richest neighborhoods in la it's like 
80% of people are vaccinated. South Central and Compton, it was like 20%. It is like, that's like, they weren't doing it to make the point of like income inequality leads to like better Yeah, healthcare. it was almost like, like should check the degree to which you, feel, you should feel safe going outside. Literally, yeah, literally. <laughs> it was like, don't go to these neighborhoods. They're bad. These people, you know, they don't want to, it was like almost like implying that they were anti-vaxxers. It was just like, oh, oh my I God. Yeah, 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 yeah. How far has the vaccination program reached yet? Yeah. And for some reason, because it's not reached there, it must be there's some resistance from these areas kind of yeah. thing. Yeah. Not hmm. that has anything else to do with it. Boy, if only there was some kind of precedent for other countries, uh, even the United States, vaccinating a lot of people in a short amount of time. There are, but they're all like around World War II or prior. <laughs> and then, yeah, never happened again. Weird. So strange that we can't do that now. I wonder what happened in between then and now. Um... All right, should we talk about things that are happier? See, all our previous episodes were answered to that question. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Jesus. Um, I don't happier know times? Should we talk about happier times? Happier should times. Should we talk about the beginning of the 18th century? Yes, <laughs> as, as we love to do. We should say, other than, other than Ralph Miliband, who we're just still reading that one book, so can't really count him, and other than Karl Marx. <laughs> I suppose. This is the first returning guest <laughs> as you called them dan champion would you like to introduce the returning champion who this a was ellen mixon's word makes her return there she is there she is folks <laughs> there she is she's coming back victory you, lap yeah this was an essay that i proposed we read i read it about a year ago or so i'd read it before but i read it about a year ago to realize well, it felt quite sort of significant its arguments bore some weight it's kind of a development on of our ongoing discussions of uh, class, mm. the theory of class and Marxism. Absolutely. Um, I think probably because we're both wrestling with it to some extent, For but sure, also yeah. because it's quite clearly apparent that it's one of the key terms in, a, in what sure. a Marxist politics might be. And one I mean, that everybody you... disagrees on. Sure. Quite, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, if, that, if, the, um, if the Ralph Miliband book is about anything really, it's about class mm -mm. in various different guises but mm -mm. that's the thing that runs throughout his description of like politics yeah. it's all about like uh, yeah i was considering running over again what he bought up because <clears throat> he was basically just in that reading critiquing basically althusser's like constrictions of ideology as it relates to class in um that specific section that chapter I forget what it was called something about the old ways defense of the old ways or something <laughs> like that um but in this, yeah, Althusser gets criticized quite a bit as well. Yeah, because, it takes another mention. Yeah, but he just gets a beating It's brutal. We're going to have to, um, we have, we've read Althusser. Yeah, yeah, we give him. I was just about to say, we're going to have to read some Althusserians. But Let's not do that again. Maybe not, maybe, maybe not. So, I mean, I guess, I guess with this, what was, what was the name of it? It was Class as Process and Relationship was the name of this essay from the book. Which is, I guess, just a collection of essays. Yeah, right? so I, I suppose it was. It has been published again at some other, some earlier points, and then it's, mm. it was, it's collected into the collection of essays by Ellen Meeksins Wood, which is entitled gotcha. "Democracy Against Capitalism: Renewing Historical Materialism." Woo! Um, available by Facebook. <laughs> um, it's largely a discussion of the theories of or a defense of the theories of class that are uh, operant or inherent in the work of British historian E.P. Thompson. Mm. Um, although there are several times when Meeksins would kind of suggest that maybe she veers closer to describing her own theories of class than she does Thompson's, but she's definitely like working from um, 
E.P. Thompson's work kind of thing. Yeah. And I guess largely offering a defence of him against um, various critics in the sort of like structuralist Marxist and the Althusserian mm. and also sort of in the analytic Marxist traditions. Yeah, kind of post-Marxist for um, a bit as well with like Stuart Hall yes, and stuff. Yes, yeah, yeah. And also... Um, yeah, I mean, yeah, the, 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 the post-Marxist move was to transition away from class as being significant to politics at all. Mm. I don't know a great deal, don't know particularly much about um, post-Marxism. One of the one of the theoretical moves was to look for other agents. Kind mm. of thing. Mm. Um, so, yeah, there is a sort of a defence of the general theory of class. Largely what A.P. Thompson is doing is attempting to defend... Mm. Uh, Marxist theory of class. He quite engaged quite ver- vociferously, I oh, suppose. Yeah. <laughs> with um, with he or he he critiqued mm. quite uh, extensively, um, <laughs> and with bigger. <laughs> oh my god! Um, Althusserianism mm. um, and structural Marxism, and I mean his ge- his general. I think his general aspiration uh, when it comes to class is to demonstrate how it is a historic force and mm. how classes are historic agents kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and how they are formed and fashioned through historic processes mm. um, in opposition to the more... Well, he obviously, he obviously he's defending Marx and Marx's theory of class or counterposing his theories of class to mainstream sort of bourgeois sociological mm. definitions, mm. Um, which I guess could uh, broadly be grouped together, broadly grouped together in this essay under the term, what do you say, sedimentary? Or... Yeah, like hierarchical sedimentary, yeah, something yeah, like that. Yeah, so basically, yeah. like, um, you just sort of imagine your sort of traditional social pyramid to some extent. Yeah. And then you just, def- you decide some metric upon which to uh, allocate people to different levels of a thing. Like income like or something. Income mm-hmm. or like social advantage or the like kind of thing. It's very strict, not very fluid. Yeah. It's, yeah. But also like it is possible to sure transition sure, sure, sure. between basically just based on some kind of metric. Kind of yeah. Thing. And then also, he so he's, so he's sort of defending Marxism against that kind of theory, or at least opposing that kind of theory to Marxism. I guess if, if, if non-Marxist social science and theories of class can be described as being uh, hierarchical or sedimentary in that fashion, mm. um, the sort of the Marxist theoretical version of that is, or... The, the the a way of defining a Marxist theory of class would be to say that it's about relationships, mm. um, and bas- relationships that stem from the nature of the uh, exploitative process that is the hallmark of any particular mode of production. So mm. it it allows for a much um, uh, starker distinction between representatives of a class kind of thing, mm. um, where that sort of stark gap could be lost if you were. Um, working in a more mainstream sociological, yeah, theoretical, yeah. 
space. <laughs> yeah, no, it's good. I mean, it seemed like the majority of what Thompson, well, first of all, I just, I kind of want to say too, it's like at the beginning of the essay, Meeson's Wood was like, I'm going to attempt to put forward my own idea of class and not just Thompson's, but it was kind of like, I kind of feel like she did just kind of put forward Thompson's, but <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, yeah. She, yeah, I get what she was doing. Um, but the main point behind trying to, as you say, like insert the, the study of history into the study of class and not just use sociology is to kind of prove that class is something that's dynamic and that it's constantly changing throughout time. So he's also, like, in, in, in introducing history to the study of class, he's introducing, like, the aspect of time and that as a mode develops or degrades, um, so too do the uh, social relations and the classes evolve and decay. Um, or maybe not decay, but at least change, right? Develop, I don't know if that's fair to say. But, um, I did, yeah, I did find it very refreshing the whole, the whole time I was kind of wondering what the purpose of going through and really like having this in-depth analysis of um, class was. Like obviously I understand why she's doing it because it's like central to like the Marxist project, right? But I felt kind of one thing that was lacking from this was a kind of um, like reason. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. And like an application, I guess I should say, of this kind of thought. I kind of kept wanting to have examples pulled from modern society because to me like she, she does bring up a point how it's like kind of hard to just say like peasant lord king uh in the feudal mode and when you're talking about class but it's always a lot easier to define class back then or even in earlier like modes of the capitalist mode earlier versions of the capitalist mode than it is now and i think that maybe one of my main frustrations with this was that i was like like ep thompson was mainly working on his uh critique of like the formation or was it called the formation of the english working class which is like industrial revolution kind of stuff like that mm -hmm. and i really kind of wanted to know how we could use this to apply it to now right to apply it to well, i guess just like revolutionary strategy or something along those lines um but it, yeah, definitely it was helpful and it was very elucidating to think of class as something that is constantly dynamic and changing and not just as like working class, duh, because you're, you know, uh, surplus value is being extracted from you in this way, you're working class or whatever, you know what I mean? But um, but yeah, like I said, any anytime I think a theory gets um, the kind of treatment where you need to think of something you've always thought of, whether it be class or uh, transitioning between modes as like, less fixed and less kind of structural and more dynamic i kind of think that it generally always kind of makes sense and i found that to be the case in this if that makes sense sure yeah yeah, yeah. Mm. yeah i get like maybe it would be good to start with or to swing back to mm. um these structuralist marxists for sure yeah, yeah um it's sort of like beginning to find a way to answer mm. why your question why why <laughs> <laughs> She she kind of makes the argument that the structuralist Marxists are advancing something that's much more akin to the sort of bourgeois sociological theory of class than they are um, a sort of properly Marxist one. Mm. Um, and basically their theory of class is that it stems directly from, um, what do I say, like relations of production. Mm. But it, it sort of feels like... It, the, there being uh, Wood and Thompson's mm. critique of the structuralists is basically that um, they are drawing a theory of class directly from other theories that they're sort of placing above historical process and 
historical experience, I suppose. Mm. And so they're, they sort of don't have a, a, a way of explaining how, um, or what seems to be lacking, or what's Thompson, if, if, if there is, if Thompson's relationship to these theorists is as would at one point suggests is this kind of like an additive thing. Like he's taken the process a step further. Um, he's basically adding into the, 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 the equation, like how it is that um, you manage to get from how objective social relations, the social relations of capitalism move toward a, I guess kind of like a sub subjective phenomena, which is mm. uh, class. Yeah, or at least like, um, I guess the 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 criticism is that like this the structuralist Marxist is just in that there, there is like a mechanical connection almost like once you have certain uh, relations of production, it automatically gives way to certain uh, class relations, which sort of automatically lead to um, a certain degree of class consciousness mm. which uh, leads to a certain degree of militancy and all of these are theoretical leaps from one sort of like one theory to the next um, without any uh, detailed analysis of how this process is actually happening mm. in terms of uh, the experience of the people involved kind of thing yeah um, and so one of the ways in which this this Thompson's theories, I think, are quite useful. Is that they introduce the idea of the question, or the question of um, class formation? Mm, yeah, How is it absolutely. that classes form themselves and are constantly being formed? And quite, yeah, like um, it's not. It's only there's only there's only one point when in this essay where Meeks would kind of suggest that one of the problems with the structuralist analysis is that whenever you find yourself in a historical circumstance where class doesn't seem like a very like present pressing visible historical agent mm -hmm. the only reaction that most people will have is to say that while well, the structuralists are just kind of like forcing their theory onto historical circumstances mm -hmm. rather than having any evidence uh, for that um, and by asking the question like so w what is the process by which uh, classes form themselves into I guess like conscious actors to some extent you can kind of look at history or or Woods is suggesting that Thompson's theories of class allow for one to explain uh, where and in what ways class is operating when it's not sort of historically obvious I mm. suppose or sort of theoretically present all the time yeah, one thing, I, one thing I also think that's worth bringing up on that point is that when Thompson says that, that he uh, has been accused of volunteerism, which is just kind of like that classic yeah, word, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and I thought that was interesting because perhaps it's just a bit of a misconstruing of what he was saying because people think that it's assigning too much historical agency, perhaps, to like... I always just kind of assume, assume when people use that word is like too much historical agency to like one person, right? Like Stalin did the Soviet Union, you know what I mean? But like I think that they were using that word to kind of be like you're allowing for too much uh, leeway. You're pulling away from structuralism too much. And, and yeah, again, it just comes back to the idea of like no because these things aren't set in stone. They're constantly evolving and time is like this like third axis that comes out at you that like you need to take into account – because if you're constantly looking as like 
at a class as a class existed at the beginning of a mode that's going to kind of be useless having said that like thompson was pulling all these ideas from like 1790 but <laughs> <laughs> the, the point is well made i think yeah to answer that kind of thing like one of thompson's lines is like the working class made itself as much as it was made yeah the working class to the extent that it sort of developed itself into a sort of like uh, a historic agent um and a series of movements and um, ways of conceiving itself as in solidarity with other people who it was mm. not necessarily day to day engaged with, kind of thing. Sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. It, it, well, he's basically just the, the the structuralist can only say that X sort of leads to Y, right? Yeah. Like the the product, the social relations of capitalism put people in certain circumstances such that a certain type of class identity and class consciousness cannot but develop itself. Yeah. And it's just what what the, the structuralists seem to be, um, seem to locate in the early history of capitalism, um, that process of the formation of class as being something that's tied to the uh, Industrial Revolution. Mm. Sure. And also, to some extent, do uh, non-Marxist theorists as well, right? Like, but what Thompson is saying is like the the. I guess there's a lot. There's a lot of parallel here between um, Thompson's theories here and Meeks's Woods arguments in the mm. the origins of capitalism. Absolutely, yeah. Um, because if you say that the class, the working class, comes about gains some kind of coherence or unity. Um, comes to bear one kind of identity mm. based on an experience of being forced into the factory system kind of thing. Yeah, experience of domination, I think is what they say at one point. Yeah, you ba you're basically, you're basically they're sort of falling foul of a similar kind of argument about the origins of capitalism, which is like, it's actually only a uh, quantitative increase in yeah. a certain um, sort of ad advancement of productive capacities, mm. which sort of like gives way to capitalism kind of thing. Determines everything for sure, yeah. Thompson, on the other hand, is working with a theory of class which, which or transition to capitalism rather, which is very much more similar or in line with the, the Brenner-Wood <laughs> sort of like uh, <laughs> thesis. <laughs> I think it's funny whenever we to, refer to, to her as to, Wood. To steal a term. To st <laughs> um, <laughs> the Wood thesis. And he look. He he basically he 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 moves the focus away from um, industrialization as a thing that forms mm. uh, the working class, uh, as we sort of theoretically understand it in in Marxism, and he moves it towards the origin of capitalism, capitalism itself, which mm. is operant in the creation of the working class, mm. or creates the circumstances whereby the class forms itself in response to the transition. Yeah. Um, and uh, as we know, like, or as we learnt in our reading of the origins of capitalism, and um, I mean, at least for me, it continues to be my um, primary reference and reference material for the origins of capitalism. Mm. We know from that book that capitalism predated industrialization, and originally was came about in. Um, a change in the social relations of uh, sort of feudal England, whereby 
sort of domination of people by uh, market forces and market relationships and the requirement to operate under new sort of like structuring premises, I suppose, i.e. the requirement to uh, invest, to expand one's productive capacities kind of thing, the desire for constantly expanding uh, growth and wealth um, was a sort of like entirely new mode of operation that people who had pre who sort of experienced that transition suddenly had to like learn to live with kind of thing and we know in one circumstance in, in the in the original circumstance it was this process whereby um peasants ceased to own the land or have to have any relationship to the land in which they worked and in, instead became wage laborers for sort of a new uh, agricultural sort of capitalist class kind of thing Mm. Um, all of this is to say <laughs> Thompson um, dates the emergence of the working class as something which happened prior to industrialization. he puts the dates in between like 1790 and 1830 kind of thing um, when these new social relations of capitalism were beginning to make themselves apparent to the new sort of lower subjugated and what would become the sort of new nascent working class kind of thing. Um, and as the, the new logics played themselves out, in the lives of these people who could remember a world that existed differently, um, the experience of this sort of newly intensified productive process and um, the extent to which it was so markedly more exploitative in experience than it than the previous one led them to begin this process of uh collective action forming sort of new trade unions or friendly societies uh creating links between different very different sort of workplaces and started to fashion this new class identity i suppose and class consciousness i mean i suppose what i'm saying is this is an explanation as to how thompson Describe the process of class formation as being one in which um, the new class had a collective experience of the exploitative social relations of capitalism as they emerged. Well, I guess what I'm trying to say is like we, if we live at a time at which like class conflict is, a, I guess, a, something of a low ebb, or like the at least the 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 force of the working class and its apparent consciousness is quite is reduced i suppose its ability to function as a united actor um is considerably less than it what it may have been at other points in history thompson's theories about how class forms itself as an experience of the process and all the experience of living under capitalism tells us a lot more than the structuralist one which doesn't tell us very much at all about um how you how the the jump is made between a sort of like objective collection of uh theoretical descriptions of how social relations function the capitalism and how you get to a point where there is a conscious class that you can can be said to be acting but thompson's fixation on sort of like formation of class 
could perhaps be a much more useful one. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it is interesting, right? It's like when you, when you kind of take that like structural view as with kind of like any aspect of just pure, you know, capitalized structuralism, it doesn't really leave much room for like anything. It's kind of like, what, what the fuck is the point? It's like, Mm -hmm. why do I, like, why do I care if there's just like this huge weight on top of me that I can't do anything about if the classes don't have any kind of historical agency that kind of just seems like it completely defeats the purpose of the working class, which is to finally be the uh, group of people that overthrow capitalism, right? It seems like it almost, it, like, those two things don't really make much sense together. And so, I mean, like, I so, yeah, I suppose what E.P. Thompson here is trying to do is, and what he gets criticized for, is give some kind of agency to classes in themselves, right? And that it's not just these big things that you can't deal with that are out of your control, dude. And it's like, whoa, bro, it's just like the big wheel of history, which seems like I'm, I'm actually almost interested to like read more about the people that were criticizing Thompson because it seems almost antithetical to Marxism. That might be like a little like, whoa, over the top crazy, mm-hmm. but like pure structuralism does seem to be antith- antithetical, antithetical to Marxism because it's like, what about this historical role that's been given to the working class it's like you can't just write that off as like volunteerism and be like well sorry dude i'm not listening to you because you're you know you're not looking at history like i am it's like i'm interested i guess the people she was talking about uh jerry uh cohen who i'd just like to pause for a moment and say that i had no frame of reference for who that was and any of his theories until dan you sent me a video that made me laugh my ass off which was him was it the one of him interviewing, pretending to interview Stalin or interview I Marx? Mean, I think I sent you the one where he's pretending to interview Marx. But <laughs> that rocked. The one, yeah, he goes to interview Marx after having been disillusioned <laughs> with his interview of Stalin. Mr. Marx? Yes, sit down, sit down. It's very good of you to, to want to talk to me. What can I do for you? Mr. Marx, I'm terribly puzzled. You're talking in a Russian accent. I thought you were German. Well, in a way, you're right. You're right. You've got a point. I was preparing to open my show in Germany. Or, or, you know, we had everything ready. Big stage, lots of proletarians, high level of class consciousness, factories, very bad capitalist class, sympathetic middle class, good ideas, newspapers, but it didn't work out. So we had to move the whole show to Russia. And there we had terrible problems. Because in Russia it was mostly peasants. Everywhere I went I said, where can I find some factories, some workers, some exploiters, some capitalists with big cigars. It was just peasants, landowners, feudal lords. So we had to do it there. And, uh, you know, it wasn't very good. It wasn't the scenario we originally intended. It didn't work out. So it was a big disappointment for you. Very disappointment. Very, very disappointment. Look who they got to lead the country there. Lenin, Trotsky, Stalin. Trotsky at least was Jewish. Stalin wasn't even Jewish. You know, I mean, what kind of a thing is it to have Stalin, a man like that? If at least he'd been a nice Jewish boy, he would never have run the country in such a stupid way. What did he get from killing so many people? He was an undertaker or something. Yeah, that was pretty wild. Not who I expected him to be. (laughs) Um, But yeah, yeah, it's funny because this made me interested to see how you can pair those two things, how you can pair this like non-dynamic theory of class which I guess that's a go- that's a little bit unfair to to Cohen and to um, <laughs> Anderson again. Anderson does not come across very well in any of her writings, um, but yeah, I am interested to know how those two things can be paired. This like lack of agency with like Marxism, I guess I don't know because it's like 
you hear a lot of people criticize Marxism as being like too big wheel of history if they don't really know what they're talking about. If they'd be like, oh, well, you know, you just go from one. It's That's not the way it works. It doesn't work that you just go from feudalism to capitalism to socialism and nothing's inevitable, blah, 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 blah. And obviously that's true. But then it was interesting to see these people criticize Thompson for having a view of Marxism that like wasn't as kind of like almost determinist enough. It was interesting. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if that's actually what they're saying, because again, it's not fair to just read someone criticizing them and be like, oh, that's what they're saying. But uh, it's not something that I figured you could really pair very well, which it seems like they were attempting to do. But again, this is a criticism of them, so I don't know. <laughs> Maybe they do. Yeah, it's difficult, isn't it? Like, I guess, I guess, like, um, we could. This could be a jumping off point for like really questioning Marxism as a kind of like totemic theoretical structure, mm. um, such as it exists. Yeah, because yeah, like in the last hundred years, it just seems like it's so many people have viewed it so differently with like the collapse of the Soviet Union as being like, I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> what do yeah, we do yeah, now? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cultural yeah. theory. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> or even that process was even entrained before that kind of thing. Sure. Yeah, like, yeah. With the advent of like Stalinism and, mm. uh, and the real sort of loss of, yeah, I don't know. Uh, mm. The loss of that, that, that little, that thing, that certain thing, <laughs> that spark, that little, that whatever it is, <laughs> moxie, that Marxist moxie. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Well, I mean, really, it's any, any connection between a movement for socialism and a... Say it. I don't know. I, like... I think I, if you're going to say what I think you're going to say, I'm going to be very happy. Are you going to say... And, 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 a, and a sort of class agent underbearing, okay. undergirding it. And That's like... pretty good, too. <laughs> I was hoping you were going to say an academic, like, like very, like, removed, like, upper, like, stiff upper, not stiff upper lip, keeping your nose up. But, like, uh-huh, uh-huh. You know, borders on structuralism, something <laughs> like that. Um, yeah, we have an, at the end of this essay, there's a sort of, like, development on what we were talking about last week about substitutism. And yeah. uh, she she adds the phrase academic, is it, or intellectual yeah. substitutism kind yeah. of thing? Yeah, yes. Which is basically just, like, like... a sort of, like intellectuals substituted themselves for the only people who can um, yeah. possibly understand what is going on. And then literally do nothing with that information. Yeah. <laughs> Be like, well, there's nothing you can do, dude. I don't know. <laughs> the only people who can have any possibility of sort of analyzing the, mm. the structure of capitalism and explaining its processes kind of thing. Yeah. So I think, I, okay, I think that's kind of what, when I was reading this, when I was kind of trying to understand what, Okay, this is going to sound like, well, because this is the basis of the entire Marxist project again, but it's like, what's the purpose of really trying to understand a class like this and really trying to pinpoint this kind of like academic description of it? Because if you were to like give all of this information to just like a normal person, they'd just be like, what the fuck are you talking about? Like, why? Like, like you and I were talking about this before we started recording, just like the colloquial definition of class versus the academic one. And that's funny because maybe the colloquial definition is like purely based on like economic status, right? Whereas obviously there are more things that go into it. There's like uh, upbringing, the culture that you're exposed to there, the culture you're exposed to later in your life, et cetera. Um, But yeah, it's funny because I guess what I'm trying to say is that that colloquial definition seems to almost do a better job of understanding who's who in in this struck in this in this world, I guess, in the society, than like really trying to pinpoint it in an academic way. Does that make sense? Because, or at least maybe it doesn't do a better job, but it is able to come to a conclusion in a certain way. I, don't know. I mean, I suppose it it speaks more to how class is experienced. Sure than mm. uh, a kind of like stale objective uh definition such that you w- would get from 
um, one that was based and drawn purely from a theoretical framework that was based on purely talking about mm. social relations in a sort of abstracted sure. way, by which I mean like the relationships of uh, exploitation in any mode of production kind of thing. Mm. Yeah, I think that was... Which a... is not something that's like... Well, I suppose it is. I sp- it, it, it can be uh, directly experienced, right? Like, Sure. Um, that's what Thompson is saying is the driving force of the early formation of the working class, this experience of a new exploitative structure. Mm. But at the same time, yeah, like, why, why is it that, like, uh, a colloquial understanding of class might be seen to be more descriptively useful, I suppose? Mm. Well, I suppose because I mean, that's... I mean, it's, it, it is basically... Um, I was just about to say it sort of <laughs> explains the the relationships between people under capitalism, but we would hope that like uh, Marx's definition might do a better job than that, you know? Like, yeah, um, but it's also like if you're using these four actual practical means, that's like the bread and butter of what you're actually going to have to deal with. You know what I mean? Is like actual practical lived experience, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. When you're actually talking to people, when you're actually trying to build something, you don't build necessarily off of like a structural or uh, more of a definition of class like this, like a more academic understanding of class, unless you're really being big brained about it, maybe. Mm -hmm. But when you're really trying to convince people, it is more about like, no, you know what I'm talking about. You know what I mean? And it is like, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's, it's tricky because I think there's a bit of a disconnect between like actual practice and like talking about it, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. but I guess that's just because it's a smaller scale. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I guess the the early working class were taking their uh, lived experiences mm. and then um, finding that other people in wildly different workplaces or parts of the country working in different fields under different circumstances mm. were having very similar experiences. Mm, sure. So I guess similarly, if a sort of like new movement based upon class i suppose or a new class mm. consciousness were to fashion itself it would happen on similar lines right like it's about um sort of solidaristic recognition of mm. a, a, having a similar plight or resisting a certain set of circumstances that you find yourself existing under mm. yeah well it's funny isn't it because if you take the basic premise of the working class is like the only the working class is destined somehow to uh, overthrow capitalism in some way because it is the only group of people whose interests um, immediately align themselves with its overthrow. It seems like it should be really easy to figure out who's part of that class. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's frustrating that it's not. But I mean, it's it's interesting, too, because there's also a disconnect between like people who would benefit living under socialism and people who have an immediate interest in overthrowing capitalism, like those aren't the same thing. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I don't have anything else to say on that, just that I find that interesting. It seems like it would be really easy, right? But I guess it's not. I guess that's why people write books about it. Well, I mean, people have all sorts of different um, interests. This is the problem, right? Mm. And um, one of the things she talks about in terms of class analysis is that, like, um, there are two ways to look about the uh, look at the relationships that are created by class one is the relationship between uh, members of a working class mm. and their relationship to an exploiting class 
And the other one is the the relationships between all members of a class themselves kind of thing. Sure. And this is when you kind of get into the nitty gritty, right? Because like everybody living under a capitalist mode of production has a wildly different experience. Well, has has a different day to day material experience of mm. um, capitalism, and that doesn't just come necessarily come down to like different bosses and different active physical activities in different workplaces. But I suppose like I guess you have to overcome this desire to just seek advantage by advantaging that productive activity or workplace like mm. you could certainly see why people would choose to even to some extent like ally with an employer in defense of the continued existence of a, that their mm. uh, paycheck comes from the work right. yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> so people might so may, people might identify their interest or their short-term interest as being um with the continued existence of their Sure. Their workplace rather than like um, seeing their, I don't know. Long term revolutionary <laughs> goals. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. yeah. Can't really fault anyone for not seeing that. Mm-hmm. And yeah, and I mean, I guess I really wanted her to talk about like the management strata. And I don't really mean like PMC or something like that. Like I do mean specifically like um, different tiers of what you could still conceivably called a working class, whether that's like, uh, you know, basic minimum wage workers, uh, supervisors, and then like the people who boss around the supervisors, which is like usually like a manager or something like that. Mm -hmm. I really wanted her to kind of apply these theories to that. Did it seem to you like she, like she did, or was she like working towards that? Or was it a little bit more like historical broad scope of a theory of developing class? It's more of a theory of history than I guess it is mm. a theory of socio- sociology or sure. of class analysis in that kind of like mm. uh, nitty gritty sense. I mean, my yeah, my favorite um, my favorite section in this and the bit which first uh, uh, drew my attention to it was the was a portion where um, she's applying uh, Thompson's theory of class to the analysis of history. And saying that rather than the structuralists who don't really see any movement internal to the mode of production, Thompson's theory of class gives us a way of sort of like historicizing the mode of production itself, kind of thing. Um, mm. if, it, if history is a series of modes of production, like the internal history of a mode of production is the conflict between classes. And the kind of like advancement of the history of the mode of production is that conflict between classes, mm. and it seems to suggest that the only point at which the the any mode of production will be transition well will be overcome, I suppose, or a transition will begin to a new mode of production is when the class struggle results in that outcome. Yeah. Um, what kind of disappointed me was that there wasn't any kind of like. Um, application of that theory to a sort of socialist or communist transition mm. um but i suppose one of the uh, features of a sort of thompson's analysis which somehow differs from a lot of others is that like so many other theories of class that we've kind of encountered i mean it was some to some extent apparent last week was that class always seems to be this kind of like ever advancing thing like uh, consciousness is ever is constantly kind of developing itself to some extent mm. um and we'll sort of reach some terminal point and then the kind of like 
switch will happen kind of thing. Whereas I, f I sort of feel like um, a theory of class which comes from uh, E.P. Thompson's work is one which allows for a lot more sort of back and forth in the class conflict. It mm. sort of like allows for an accurate description of kind of how the fortunes of various classes can ebb and flow kind of thing. Sure. Um, there, yeah, there was one line on that note that really stuck out to me, which was something like hegemony isn't complete domination. It's constant struggle. And that was almost, I was like almost relieved by that. I was like, oh, it's not constant domination. Thank God. <laughs> Jesus. Uh, but I think, yeah, I think that speaks to kind of what you're saying. And again, it speaks against the kind of like undefeatable, like structuralist, like, oh no, nothing we can do ever. Mm -hmm. Period. Mm -hmm. But yeah, also there's, there was another line that she said where there was something like the, the mode reaches crisis when the development of class relations transforms the production relations themselves. So that is exactly what we saw in her theory of the transition from feudalism to capitalism, right? Where it wasn't just this technologically determinist, as you say, like quantitative increase. Um, it was like the development of a trend that had kind of long been coming that was very much like uh, fluid and active and dynamic and not just a like clean cut boom. like kind of Yeah, thing. it was kind of, yeah. In the description of the transition to capitalism, it was kind of like the same classes... Certain descriptions of that transition describe sort of new classes emerging, mm. um, whereas for Ellen Meeks's word, like it was the the same sort of like people occupied the same uh, positions of domination through the transition. Mm. Um, I mean, you you still had the the sort of the feudal landlord became the the the, the capitalist landlord kind mm. of thing. And the peasant farmer continues to work the land, mm. but it was it was a sort of like change in that relationship, i.e., the the landlord's new desire to uh, more thoroughly exploit their the people working the land, mm. um, and to inflict or enforce upon that relationship new like production standards, I suppose, or like. Um, Modes of extraction. Yeah, kind of. yeah, the, the requirement to improve agricultural yields kind of thing. But yeah, but um, what, what's interesting about that, though, too, is that it, you know, we have to remember that she does make the point that it was these classes trying to stay the same, trying to stay yeah, as they yeah, were, yeah, yeah, yeah. or at least trying to keep the status quo that led them to this change. Yeah, that was something that we stumbled upon in that, read, that mm. reading all those episodes ago, and I sort of had <laughs> hoped that maybe this book would elucidate it or explain some of that. To some That's extent, an interesting wrinkle. Really, it didn't really get there. We're still in this position of, like, how do you imagine a transition into socialism or communism when um, the the contending classes are actually in a battle to um, defend their present position to some extent? Yeah, and that's the thing. This reading made it... I'm still going to have to think about what this the implications of this are, but it's like, if classes are constantly being formed and it is dynamic and it is active but at the same time that transition if we're going to use that as any kind of a roadmap for the next transition was un happened because of a lot like to use her thesis because a lot of these people are trying to maintain their uh maybe not relations but at least as you say like what they had it's like that's a, that's a whole nother wrinkle that i've like got to like, come to terms with i mean with. yeah but the, that that allows for um, a sort of like a quite somber analysis of our present circumstance and some mm. questions that we've been developing. Like, um, why doesn't 
class always mechanistically develop into class consciousness in the way it's sometimes expected to do mm. by certain Marxist theorists. Why do you get something like what Lenin described as trade union consciousness, where mm. um, working class people will learn to defend their position to a certain extent, but won't identify advancing their advantaging their position most fully with embracing a revolutionary politics? Yeah, um, yeah. And it's the same thing that Meeks's Woods describing happening under feudalism, right? Or in mm. the, the early stages of that transition. Like, um, it's, it's class actors in a class struggle not necessarily seeking to overthrow the class relationships, but just to uh, maintain their present circumstance in the way that they best can kind of thing. Well, that could just be education, though, I guess, right? Because, I mean, like, if... Like, I know I've heard McNair say that um, responding to a critique of, like, we might have brought this up on the show before, but, like, responding to a critique of, like, how you need to somehow infiltrate armed forces with your ideas, with your ideology. He's like, you're not actually going in there and being like, hey, guys, you ever read Lenin? Like, he's basically saying, no, you need to just get to a point where your ideas are so spread that they just organically make their way into the armed forces. I think it's the same thing. It's like if you grow up constantly being told, like, the ocean's pink because you live in Nebraska and you've never seen a picture of the ocean for some reason, you can be like, damn, the ocean's pink. That's normal. But it's like, it, you know, if you don't know that, like, you know, there is another way we could do these things. And it is called socialism, and it would be way better for you. And, hey, you wouldn't even have to worry about protecting your wage because, you know what, you wouldn't even need to have a wage, mm -hmm. right? I think it's. I think that's – I think that might be the answer to that question. But because, you know, I, maybe just the ideas aren't spread far enough. If you Again, if you just don't know that there's another way, and it, but it involves, like, a lot of action that you have to take, you're not going to do it because you don't know about it, right? Mm -hmm. I'm shrugging. <laughs> <laughs> one of the, looking over history and looking over like the history of socialist revolutions i mean they either happen in dictatorial regimes of some sort mm. and for the most part they happen at like moments of like ultimate crisis kind of thing sure um it's only at those moments of like total breakdown that people seem willing to throw their lot in with a sort of like totally revolutionary aspiration to some extent which would otherwise seem crazy and i don't think like any leftist could argue otherwise because it's like if you, if i were to not have any background in like left politics at all and someone were just coming to me to be like dude what if we had a way where like you just didn't have to get paid dude i'd be like shut up <laughs> like, what are you talking about that makes yeah, no yeah. sense yeah, so yeah, yeah. i suppose yeah that is kind of one of the reasons that like it only happens in crisis because you just go i don't know we need to do it some other way we absolutely have to you know, I'm shrugging again. I, don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the other another sort of thing that came comes to mind in this this discussion, and um, it's partly preempted by some discussion in the book, is the dis the distinction that's brought up in the book is the sort of Marxist distinction between uh, formal and real. Um, what's the right word? I want to say subsumption, but like. Um, <laughs> The process by which capitalism advanced itself mm. was to initially like a formal taking over of the existing world. Capitalism first imposed relations, new capitalist relations of production upon the productive apparatuses that existed. Mm. And only when that process was fully enough advanced 
could they begin like a real transition of the productive process itself? Sure. Um, i.e. like the industrial revolution kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. One of the, one sort of like, as I recall and as I understand sort of like, theories advanced by certain like left communist uh, traditions is that once you get to the point where there is this real um, transition of the productive apparatuses themselves, like even the possibility for revo fully revolutionary class consciousness is at that point kind of foreclosed because mm. the working class is so fully um, sort of incorporated into the new system of capitalism mm. that like the possibility of a, a sort of like revolutionary aspiration developing is kind of lost. Mm. And to some extent, it, it, to me, it kind of ring, it rings kind of true in the sense that, like, I mean, in the instance of um, the transition that's described by Thompson and the development of the working class that's described by Thompson, it's because they could, the the working class that he is looking at can remember and is, is experiencing the transition, the change in uh, in uh, production relations themselves. Uh, that they they can kind of remember what it used to be like before, and they're they're experiencing the trauma of that transition firsthand, kind of mm. thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and it sort of makes me wonder why one one of the reasons why the most successful like communist revolutions have happened in places where capitalism wasn't very fully advanced mm. is for a similar reason, kind of sure. thing. That like people have a much closer relationship to the traumatic event, which is the the onset of capitalism kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. That's a good point. It's quite a song, sanguine thought. It is yeah, sanguine, somber. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I guess the main takeaway, right, is to just focus on class formation and not, as she calls it, location, right? This kind of, like, idea of every, like, set in stone kind of way of looking at class. Um, it is always changing, I guess. Um, it is always dynamic, fluid, all those words again active i mean i guess yeah I, I guess from thompson's theory and mixes with adoption of it um there is this real commitment to the agency of the working class yeah um similar to one that's present in marx and uh, from last week something that was like kind of lost in marxism's transition um into social mar democracy and also sort of like mm. russian bolshevism i suppose was like the sense in which um, the working class needs representation, um, its consciousness either needs to be fostered or um, it's it it needs to be guided toward a revolutionary destination kind of mm. thing, um, or perhaps like the only the only people who can uh, it's it's the sort of like championing of the intellectual as the only person yeah. that can like. Truly yeah. know the Ugh. the course for the working class. Ugh. So in this reading and in E.P. Thompson, you get a much more kind of like a theory which is much more willing to sort of like celebrate the capacities of the working class and mm. uh, hold to that sort of mantra that it's for the working class to liberate themselves, kind of thing. Yeah, I mean to a certain extent, right? Like you get it. Like you get why Marxist thought post World War Two or even like a little bit prior to World War Two like began. Going in that direction of like Frankfurt School, uh, all the way up to like Stuart Hall, guys like that, just kind of trying to figure out like 
damn, like, maybe the working class ain't it. <laughs> like, it's not happening. Things are bad. Why is it not happening? And I think instead of perhaps, I mean, I, I, mean, I guess time will tell. I have no idea. I'm not going to say I'm right. But, like, instead of perhaps looking critically at why the working class has not filled out its uh, assigned role that Marx gave it, um, it was a lot more of, like, yeah, maybe something else will happen. Maybe we'll figure out something else. Mm -hmm. Post-Marxism. Be aware of anything that says post. Post-punk. Post, uh, oh, that's it. Post-punk and post-Marxism. Be wary <laughs> of that. I mean, yeah, I don't know. My point is just that you get it, right? Like, it's to a certain extent, it's like, yeah, that was a bad time, and it continues to be. Uh -huh, uh -huh, uh -huh. For... <laughs> I feel quite uncomfortable now, because I feel like we've gotten to the point in our discussion here where <laughs> we are expressing some skepticism or sort of like existential panic that, like... <laughs> what else is new jesus i was talking about apocalypse earlier in our no in our sort of like our existence as marxists kind of thing sure right? yeah yeah uh, are the fundamentals of marxism rocked by um a less than sort of sanguine appraisal of the working class and its capacities kind of thing sure um and one of the things that I thought that this this reading does in a lot of ways is attempt to rescue theories of class from appearing as something which is um, imposed on history from without and not something which is sure. in uh, the, in the mock. and present in history kind of mm. thing. And it, it makes it something which is like um, sort of dynamic rather than static. Mm. Um, and also it kind of undermines the possibility... Thompson's theories kind of undermine the ideas of like there being a pure class consciousness and if the working class fails to reach that consciousness like the working class in that, in itself has failed in some kind of like um, yeah some kind of uh, critical or catastrophic way kind of thing yeah so I suppose if there's some way of sort of like rescuing us from our doldrums <laughs> yeah it's that class in this reading is something which is much more sort of like open to historical process mm. and um, subjected to historical events mm. and and whose fortunes uh, come and go. I mean, like it's. I mean, I suppose one of the things that pops up in comes up in Miliband's discussions of class is like class is not something which like emerges and doesn't exist if it's not directly visible kind of thing or class mm. conflict rather doesn't necessarily entail like um large-scale conflicts between representatives of classes yeah it's in a kind of like war-like battle-like <laughs> fashion it's kind of like the small That'd skirmishes cool. that happen every day at every yeah. moment like yeah um everybody who lives under capitalism is in one way or other experiencing the conflict that is class society mm. and it's the possibility of that collective experience which allows for the possibility of a like um, collective response to that experience i suppose yeah um, yeah mm. but... still in a doldrum <laughs> having said that <laughs> i will say don't listen to me uh Oh, wait a minute. No, listen to me literally, but don't listen to me to uh, uh, further your theoretical basis and knowledge. I'm still with the working class. I'm still with that. I, I, what else is going to happen? You know what I mean? I'm still with it. Still a fan. Still hold my little working class uh, flag. <laughs> still think uh, that, yeah, that is it. <laughs>
You know why that is, Jack? Because you are working. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, we better goddamn be it. That was very good, Ellen. Well done. I really enjoyed that reading a lot. Um, uh-huh. I'm not sure if I have anything else to add to it. Yeah. Do you? Not at this present time. At <laughs> this present time. In the future, perhaps. Yeah. Paired very, very well, I will say, with Origins of Capitalism, obviously, because it's the same author, but I think reading it in this order, too. Sure. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Like, I don't know, maybe the other way would work, too, but that was pretty good. <laughs> well, Origins of Capitalism is a sort of very accessible book. Yeah. Um, this, be warned, quite, <laughs> quite a dense text, which is like... Dense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's sort of... Sp- it's speaking to debates, which like yeah, let me not let me... necessarily like we 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 could have laid a better foundation for ourselves, <laughs> but yeah, fuck it, well, fuck it, we didn't. She kind of does. That's one thing that really does bother you have to me. Start somewhere, no, exactly, <laughs> and yeah, exactly. One thing that does bother me is it's like, I get that she's an academic working in this tradition, and she does want to criticize specific people to make her point about ideas, but it really does grind my gears when a lot of a reading winds up being talking about a specific person and criticizing them as opposed to just putting forward your own ideas. And again, I get it. I know why she's doing it, blah, 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 blah. Uh But at a certain point, I would have really liked it if she just had all of these ideas and was like, there you go. Maybe in a socialist society, people won't feel Uh as necessary to attribute ideas to others, but Uh I don't know. I think she's got several books on class. Maybe Mm. we should have just read one of those. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Well, (laughs) I mean, it's... One, I don't own any of those. And two, (laughs) their whole books are not a 30-page Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. We've already read one Ellen Meek since one book. (laughs) My God. My God. Um, How exciting. How exciting. I feel like that's just a Verso Books thing, though, too. It's like, you know, kind of not really crash courses, but kind of crash courses. And it's like, you want to be able to sit down and have an opinion on G.A. Cohen, who even after this reading is still my favorite Marxist, even though I've never read anything from him, <laughs> purely from those videos. Uh, Mr. Marx, so many things have happened since you died. There must be so many surprises, you know, being resurrected like this w- when you found out, you know, what's happening. What was the biggest surprise? Very difficult to say. So many surprises, so many inventions, radio, television, Helicopter, automobile, jukebox, many, many surprises. But what was the biggest surprise, Mr. Marx? Of all the surprises, and there were very many, the one thing I would never really imagine, that David O. Selznick would cast Clark Gable in the role of Red Butler in Gone with the Wind. Mr. Marx, I'm surprised you take such a strong interest in the, in the movies. Of course I take an interest. What's so surprising? How could I not be interested in all those beautiful people? Gary Cooper, Rita Hayworth, Carol Lombard, Lassie, Judy Garland, Rin Tin Tin. But how could you take such an interest in all that? Aren't you more concerned about revolutions which are changing our whole society? This shows you have no sense of proportion. You talk about revolutions. What about Technicolor? What about stereophonic sound? What about the time Jimmy Stewart who was always a dramatic actor, had a singing role in Born to Dance. What did you text say, Dan? You were just like, not what I expected. Is that what I said? Yeah, not what... Like, yeah, yeah. I was who, like, who knew the analytic like? Marxists were this much fun? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you say that I always he... imagined them to be quite dry and boring. He <laughs> was not. Did you say that that was Eric Olin Wright filming too? Uh, yeah, filmed by you Eric Olin You can hear him snickering in yeah, the background yeah. at certain points. I it's think really there's funny. a bit of an audience. <laughs> Very classic. Um, yeah, those all rock. G.A. Cohen, what a king. It took me a while to realize that that was who that was. Yeah, she yeah, calls yeah, him like yeah. Jerry and Gerald. Jerry, and I was Gerald like, Cohen. oh, him. That guy. 
Um, it was, I watched another video of his on YouTube that was supposed to be not funny. And it was just him giving like a lecture of some BBC thing. Um, and he started it off with just this like allegory I about like a snoo. I, yeah. I couldn't get through it either. I was like, a snoo? What's a snoo? <laughs> Seems like a hoot though. Mm-hmm. Would be the one Marxist that I'd want to like hang out with. Oh, yeah, I don't know about any other ones. Come across so far. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but I mean, what uh, what is so shocking about that video is that like it's just clearly someone larking around. Yeah. I mean, the reason why you you, you think you might want to hang out with him <laughs> is because like he demonstrates his humanity. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. I'm sure all these other people are human beings. You would um, think. You would hope. Hopefully, that's some we, kind of we agency. We just haven't engaged that that, that human side mm. so mm. much. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> I'm interested to see if we ever read the book that we keep talking about we're going to read, that the audience doesn't know which one it is, how that's going to change our definition of class. Table that for now, but I think it might. All we'll right, see. all right, all we'll right. We'll see. Um, yeah, we should just, like, pencil that in. Pencil it in. Or maybe we should put it in and burn ink. Dan and I have a long scroll that we unravel <laughs> every time every time we meet to... Uh, to you know, with a long quill, right, in what we're going to read. And it's it's uh, scheduled out for seven years every week, what we're going to read. Um, having said that, no idea what we'll read next. A um, little bit of housekeeping. Capital reading series, whatever we're calling it, we're reading Capital. Episode two is up. Came out on Tuesday. Check that out. Um, we're talking about the twofold nature labor in, in the, the commodity. commodity. Yeah. Spoiler alert. It's use labor and abstract labor so or concrete labor and uh, fuck it, whatever <laughs> you'll figure it out go listen to it. <laughs> or you won't i don't know read the book um so there's that go check that out um it's a good episode because we got some feedback from our first one and it was good so go listen to that if you haven't and that's it that's the only stuff <laughs> the I feedback say. the feedback was of a high caliber yes it wasn't like good <laughs> feedback in the sense of- <laughs> yeah, exactly yeah <laughs> it was corrections yeah <laughs> Um, all right well i have no bean updates so i have nothing else to say Uh, Mm. i mean i i i i I looked into how long it takes between planting autumn sown beans (laughs) and cropping autumn sown beans and uh it might as well have been years i'll be expected to get some beans sometime (laughs) around uh... (laughs) which hopefully the world will still be around by then Yeah, 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 yeah um you'll be having what we mean to say is you'll be having broad bean updates in perpetuity, in, 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 yeah, for the foreseeable future. Yeah, 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 yeah. Till mm. the next pandemic. Yeah. Oh God, <laughs> that's what I was worried about. That and nuclear war. But other than that, yeah, whatever. yeah, the possibility of like recurrent pandemics Ugh. is one that really needs to be. I mean, now that I've actually lived through like one, cause swine flu is kind of like ah, swine flu. It's named <laughs> after a pig, and like I got to leave school like three weeks early or whatever. But this one, this one's I worse. Knew, I, like, I, sort of, I think that I knew of people catching swine flu, but it sure. was never something that was anywhere near. Yeah, I just remember it being close a flu. to me or like, mm. yeah, yeah, yeah. A couple of people in my school got it. Actually, a lot of people in my school got it. That's why we shut down school early. But yeah, it was just like they got it and then they were fine. Yeah. Um, but now that this one's still going on, I remember like, remember back in like April when everyone was like, the like wild thing was thinking that it would go on until July. Uh, yeah, yeah. God damn it, dude! It's been <laughs> this year. I know everybody's saying it, but like this year has just like, what have I done? <laughs> it's yeah. like Jesus. It was quite shocking to get back to, um, well, the beginning of this year, mm. 
and sort of like be reminded of things that happened a year ago. Yeah, oh my God. And almost be like, was that a year ago or last week? (laughs) It was one of those kind of like, um, I mean, quite often like seasonal changes inflict me with recurrent memories. (laughs) Um, But that seems... This year was particularly peculiar. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, now that old Bojo has talked about when we're going to just be done with social restrictions, which seems insane. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. (laughs) Um, I've been like, I've been like, going to a pub? Wait a minute, a pub? That's like a lot of people are there, right? I saw like a photo of like, they're like, you know, obviously like music, live music is going to be the last thing to come back. And I saw a picture of a concert and I was like, my heart tightened up. I was like, what are all those people doing so close to each other? Holy crap. <laughs> it is going to be like that, isn't it? I think. I don't yeah. know quite how long, how quick, how, how long it will take us to. Mm. I mean, to be honest, we should just like, I don't know. It's going to mm. be a problem for much longer than. It's not going to be over on the 21st of June. Exactly. Yeah. I wonder if they're... Although I'm having a bang-up party for the solstice. Yeah, is that the solstice? Yeah. Wow, that's cool. Why did they... Pl- that's weird. Do you think they planned that? I don't know. I don't that's know. weird. I mean, is Boris a pagan? Be, it might... Yeah. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> weird. Maybe it's just it's the beginning of summer and they've been saying there won't be any restrictions sure. in summer. So, like... Yeah. That's the date that they pulled out of the... Yeah. Mm, out of the ether. I'm sick of it. I'm over it. Ready for it to be gone. <laughs> I wonder if they're expecting it to come back in winter. Uh, just, just like, well, I don't know. Like, It's sort of coming back to this thing about like what we were talking about at the beginning a little bit. Like mm. feeling the, the privilege of having been... I think the privilege of having been vaccinated is, uh, is fictitious. Mm. <laughs> like, I think we have to... We really have to continue to bear in mind that vaccines only function... To build herd immunity. Sure. Okay. Yeah. 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 Sure. Like, vaccines are only. I mean, I. I, I haven't. I, I just keep. I keep asking this question, and I haven't sought out like a a good sort of scientific answer to it. Right. But what happens if there is a pandemic of coronavirus amongst mm. children and the young, Ugh. under conditions where like the, all of the vulnerable people have been. Uh, vaccinated with a vaccine which is 95% effective. Mm. Like, those 5% of people yeah. who aren't effect- uh, don't get the benefits yeah. are a lot of people yeah. who no shit. Yeah. will suffer from coronavirus if there is a pandemic amongst the yeah. unvaccinated. Yeah. Um, so the idea of vaccinating so far and then just, like, letting it all... <laughs> letting everything come back. Aside from the fact that, like, Nobody should want to get coronavirus. Yeah, it doesn't exactly. sound like it's like has particularly good. <laughs> it has the possibility of having quite negative long term effects, kind of thing. But they yeah. are talking about having every adult vaccinated by the summer, so I don't know. But I sort yeah. of wonder whether they oughtn't just start vaccinating the kids at certain point. Like, yeah, why not? They're the vectors for it. Like, I'm like, <laughs> yeah. Um, it's so depressing. I'd much rather forgo mine and have like, yeah, have all school kids be vaccinated. Yeah, no kidding. It, but like, mm. it, it sort of feels like. The vaccine is sort of seems to be touted as like personal protection, when yeah. it's not personal protection. Exactly, it's a it's a tool toward like society wide uh, immunity. I, I like how herd immunity just became everybody gets it. <laughs> it's just <laughs> like everybody what? gets COVID. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, 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 what a great. I wonder. Yeah, if... I, mean, I mean, maybe that's what they're doing, like a two pronged herd immunity. <laughs> like, like all the old people get vaccinated, and all the young people get COVID. <laughs> I wonder if the if the twenty first of June is going to just be no matter what happens, no more restrictions. This is well, just that's what they the said. There will be no more social restrictions. After yeah, the but it's like you would have to imagine that like 
maybe like there's waiting. like a thing for like a month or two, but it's like guys, if it gets really bad again, yeah, yeah, people yeah. are just gonna freak out yeah, if there are yeah. no more restrictions. I mean, I'm kind of thankful that they're they're at least being more cautious mm. with this with the coming out of this lockdown, and it's because they they're also doing it in tandem with the vaccine vaccination program. Mm. Right? I think they want the two to marry up such that like I don't know, it's kind of over. Yeah, once everybody's vaccinated. I mean, I don't know how long. We still don't really know how long the immunity from the vaccination actually lasts. I don't know. Once in a lifetime, it needs event. to be gone worldwide before yeah. it ceases to be a problem. And by the time that happens, like I don't know, there have been infinitely many mutations, and we'll probably have the next pandemic to deal with. Yeah, so. yeah. <laughs> the next pandemic. Oh God, Jesus. <laughs> um, that's a, another Am sanguine I? thought for Am the I? day. Hooray. Um, what, 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 uh, you know what? Fuck it. Never mind. <laughs> it was just going to be, it was just going to be worse. Um, anything else to say on the pandemic? Anything else to say on Ellen, on uh, E, P, Thompson, or anything else? Or are we good for today? I don't know. I don't know. I'm, I'm um, talking about distractions. I'm, mm. well, we're not talking about distractions, but like seeking out distraction. <laughs> Quite enjoying um, updates from Mars. Updates from Mars. Yeah. I've I've been a little aloof from it. Tell me oh, about it. How's it going? Well, it's what going well. It's going well. I cool. I decided to tune in live for the oh, did you? for cool. the landing. Awesome. Of the of the Perseverance rover. I'm all for it. Everybody's been like, "What a great name!" I'm like, "No, it's, <laughs> it's incredibly desperate." It like, is. <laughs> it is. <laughs> we had spirit and we had opportunity. And yeah. Whatever the other one was called. Um, D- yeah, we want the people's will. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean the Chinese will name a probe something like that. So yeah, be fine. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The Russians um, will put up like Naranyavolia or something. Um, but yeah, they've they've definitely done quite a good like PR job of like taking some photos and some videos that were mm. clearly gonna sort of like wow people to some extent. Didn't spend some video footage of it landing kind of thing and that, video I saw that, footage that was of like, cool. the parachute opening and like the, that's the coolest bit. I mean. Sky cranes, pretty cool. Yeah. Just in general, these sky totally. cranes. Totally, totally. Sky cranes. <laughs> Love a good sky crane. Um, didn't didn't was it Russia? Not the USSR. I think it was Russia that sent a probe to like. Did they send a probe to Venus and then it just it got a photo and then it blew up because it was well, like way well, too no, hot. I mean, that's a whole saga in and of itself. <laughs> like, um, I forget what that that series of pro- that series of probes were called. Um, yeah, I think the USSR spent about sent about sixteen or twenty probes to Venus. Cool. Like the USSR was terrible; they could not land on Mars for shit. They don't think they successfully <laughs> landed on Mars at all. And like Venus was kind of their their yeah their planet, but of uh, course they had no idea what the conditions were like. <laughs> sure, and like it's hot. I mean, it's it, it's like four hundred degrees <laughs> and like ninety times the atmospheric pressure of Earth. Like the the first things they like ever like how like. Uh, circuitry melts and the probes are crushed and the pro- one of the problems they had was they kept they spent ages like mission after mission after mission trying to take a photo mm. but like multiple times the lens cap failed to come off the, the camera <laughs> oh they forgot to take the lens cap off one venus the is they forgot to take it off they're like it's already up there <laughs> venus um, is the people's planet for sure yeah, yeah 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 the photo the photo that they got though is sick very it's green it's like oh a green planet interesting oh a vi- yeah yeah yeah, mm. yeah. Mm. Hellish. hellish indeed i mean all planets other than this one are hellish yeah we've got this before haven't we they all suck they all, suck. <laughs> they all do they all suck. suck mars um, could be cool i don't know maybe maybe not it's cold it does seem cold yeah colder um, than here yeah a lot mm. of radiation yeah it's not great um mm-hmm. 
need a spacesuit to walk about on the surface because <laughs> the atmospheric pressure will like boil your blood kind of thing or the lack thereof if you could somehow terraform a planet what does that have to would that change at, that would change atmospheric pressure presumably right yes because, if you yeah. could get more atmosphere yeah we'd get some more atmosphere. i mean this is, this is the like and bring some atmosphere this is the, like, yeah this is the like blow up the poles and release all the like, co2 that's locked into the is that what they did the in warhammer poles? I think that's what the admac did uh, yeah how did they terraform mars in warhammer i mean that's uh, that's definitely not <laughs> The model today. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. That's not what we want to do. For terraforming Mars. Or isn't it? Yeah. I mean, the problems with Mars are it's not got a very strong gravity, so mm. you can't really add gravity to a planet. Can't add gravity. Or you, you, although you could spin your habitats in such a way that you could sort of like mm. create some fake gravity. I like the like. Supposing that one third gravity isn't. Human beings can't live in one third gravity, which mm. we don't really know. Mm. Oh, interesting. Hmm. When are we going to send an ape to Mars? Um, yeah, I was thinking about that. Like, in, in, if this was 60 years ago, we'd have yeah. just been sending animals over there. <laughs> yeah, <true. But laughs> probably not going to happen now. Also, yeah. we can build pretty good robots. Like, that's true. <laughs> yeah, that's true. If you could treat, if you could treat, t uh, teach an ape to, like, take core samples and then store them <laughs> in a jar and, I don't know, deposit them in the right place kind true. of thing. True. True. Without just being horrified. Yeah. yeah. Um... Also, we yeah yeah we know that Mars will kill anything that we send there. There's no need yeah. to test that theory. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. I'm all for the Rendezvous with Rama esque idea of just forgoing a planet for just like a spherical tube that you can live on in space that just floats around a starship, if you will, but one that's built to simulate a planet. I like that. Sure. Give us more tubes. Sure. Um, I think it would be a bit like it would be a bit disconcerting to be able to see like that would be the top of the yeah the dome go around. Kind of yeah. Thing. Unless you, um, yeah, I, I'm more of a fan of like the spinning donut kind of structure. Yeah, like a halo kind of thing. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. More of a halo than a than, than a, a tube. Than a tube. <laughs> yeah, yeah, indeed. Than a cylinder. They usually mm. describe as cylinders. Yes, that, yes, not a tube. The tube yeah, planet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, um Jeff Bezos's great mentor, Gerard uh, <laughs> O'Neill, who was a physicist. Oh. Okay, it gives his name to the the O'Neill cylinder, which is what oh, you're describing. Interesting. Like sort of like... Wait, what does this have to do with Jeff Bezos? I don't quite know. I, I, <laughs> like, I think he's. I think Bezos Bezos studied under huh. O'Neill, and like, therefore has decided that like his great space venture is going to be realizing Gerard O'Neill's like visions for. Him. I just kind of assume these people like people Bezos. People baked bean tins in space. Kind of yeah, thing. I don't. I don't. For some reason, I don't imagine them studying anything. I just imagine them like crawling fully formed <laughs> from like a sack. Yeah, exactly. Sack exactly. <laughs> um, him, if anyone. Yeah. Yeah. When are we gonna read up on reptilians? That's what we need to read about. Mm. Mm, the reptilian people. Mm. Hey, the queen's husband, I forget his name, he's almost dead. He's <laughs> not on Death Watch, but he could be officially on the show's Death Watch. If we'd like to put him on Death Watch, we could, officially. And how do, Yeah, how do I feel about the death of Prince Philip? <laughs> we haven't heard anything about how the queen feels about all this, which I think is kind of like, all right, geez. Maybe we have, I don't understand. I don't know. I mean, yeah, do we... Do we yeah, do the royals, do they want to project sort of like humanity? I Sometimes. think they would have done only, it by only now. in a very kind of like reified sort of like <laughs> yeah uh, sort of like that was that was almost a pun reified <laughs> interesting um 
Death Watch isn't necessarily we're rooting for them to die. Because okay. I think, sadly, I think that we put Noam Chomsky on Death Watch, which I hate to say. Okay, okay, okay. Um, Just people to check in with occasionally. Yeah, him. Just to see how they're doing. Exactly. Are you okay? Are you okay? <laughs> Do you need anything? Can we get you anything? <laughs> Jeffrey Kissinger. Yeah. Not Jeffrey Kissinger. Jeffrey. What's like, his name? No, I've done Epstein. This, I've done this twice. <laughs> no, Henry, Henry Kissinger. Yeah, Henry. No, like, I, I, there is a reason why I keep making that mistake, but like... Mm. It requires referencing another podcast, <laughs> and I think that's probably taboo. Well, it could be taboo. Uh, yeah, figure it out for yourselves. That's yeah, a riddle. Yeah. Anyway, let's add him. Let's add him to Death Watch. So we have Chomsky, Kissinger, and Philip. What's Philip's last name? Uh, what is? What are the royals' last names? Actually, Windsor, I, I suppose. Philip Windsor. Yeah, well, Philip Windsor. Philip you're on Death Watch. Prince, but they don't use surnames, do they? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> They're above surnames, yeah. like popes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh, yeah. Um. All right. Well, we added another person to Death Watch. I think that's uh-huh. good enough for one day. Uh-huh. Um, and I mean, I haven't checked in with any of those people. Well, hopefully they the don't first. die before this episode goes be up. Because, yeah, like, be really MI6 might be like... Prescient. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there are more. We could add more, but, you know, what are you going to do? Um, all right. Let's end this charade. Um, uh, that was Ellen Meekson's Wood. Class as Process and Relationship. From the book Democracy Against Capitalism Renewing Historical Materialism. There it is. Pick I it up. It's a bit like a robot though, because I'm recording <laughs> it from memory, not reading it. Um, great stuff. Good to talk to you again, Dan. Good to talk to you again, audience. And my name has been Dan. My name is Dan. Thank you, John. Thank you, Dan. Thank you, audience. This has been Auxiliary Statements. Catch you next time. <laughs> The music you heard this episode was Music to Kill Bad People Too by King Gizzard and the Lizard Wizard. If you like this song, you can check it out and much, much more on their Bandcamp at kinggizzard.bandcamp.com. Be sure and follow us up on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And if you like what you heard, be sure and tune in next week for some more comedy discussion. Till next time.